the nonprofit MBA purpose is to provide new business insights and fresh creative ideas for executive directors and their teams that will help them improve their organization. Here is your host, Stephen Holastic. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Holastic, and I'm co-founder and managing partner of Financing Solutions. Has your nonprofit ever have a situation when you were short on payroll, where you uh, needed to continue a program when your your funding was delayed? Um, uh, roof blew off. There's always a variety of things that could come up when you, unfortunately, sometimes when your cash flow is low. Well, Financing Solutions is the leading provider of lines of credit to nonprofits. Our line of credit program is easy, inexpensive, and costs nothing until used, making it a great cash backup plan for your nonprofit. If you'd like to learn more about the program, please visit us at nonprofitmbapodcast.com. And if you decide to apply today, we will even give you a $250 credit on file. Or feel free to give us a call at 862-207-4118. Again, if you want to learn more, just go to nonprofitmbapodcast.com. And remember, the time to set up your line of credit is today, not when the emergency actually comes up. Today, I am excited to be speaking with Dr. Alan Abbott from Cypress Grove. Uh, Dr. Abbott is a semi-retired minister who now leads uh, philanthropy for a large system of aging services in Fort Myers, Florida. He is president of the local AFP chapter. In addition to a PhD, he earned certificates in fundraising management and religious fundraising from Indiana University. The certificate in financial planning from a certificate in financial planning from Emory University and a postdoctorate study at Harvard Divinity School and Dartmouth College. Since inception in 2018, the staff scholarship program at Cypress Living has awarded 107 scholarships, sent 55 students to college at 14 institutions, and several now are pursuing master's degrees. Practically all the students are the first in their family tree to attend college. Recipients include a brother and a sister, as well as mother and a daughter. The program is a major gift magnet, which we'll be talking about today. Last year, the program surpassed $1 million, and the average gift was nearly $1,000. The model can be adopted to a wide variety of nonprofits. Alan, welcome to today's Nonprofit MBA podcast. Thanks, Stephen. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. Good, good. Well, it's a great topic. I'm very interested in it. Uh, I love these unique topics. Um, uh, Today's topic is going to be using scholarships to secure major gifts for your nonprofit. So, you know, the first question I, I have for you is a little bit off the, uh, uh, the topic a little bit. It's, it, you know, it really amazes me whenever I speak to quite a number of, of, of religious uh, 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 leaders and how advanced their degrees are. Uh, is there a reason why it's, it's just that the religion lends itself to constant learning? Well, um, when you look at the history of higher education, there were three professions which required advanced education, um, that being law, medicine, and religion. Uh, and to this day, a, um, uh, in addition to a college uh, bachelor's degree, a master of divinity is the standard degree or the standard entry level degree for professional ministry. And that's typically a three-year degree, full-time uh, that includes advanced uh, 
uh, proficiency in both Hebrew and Greek, uh, and probably Latin or theological German and things like that. And then um, uh, it's it, it's become a standard now. Uh, unfortunately, there's another strand of um, uh, congregations and clergy who say, no, you don't need all that education. <laughs> I say, well, you know, I'd rather have it than not. <laughs> but yeah. uh, it is one of those things that is also integrated. <clears throat> and, and, you know, when, when you look at the role and the work of uh, ministry in terms of social change, whether you're looking at a, just a few people in the congregation or a large congregation or an entire community, you have to have a certain level of proficiency about sociology and psychology and the economy and all the things that, that create the circumstances that we have so that you can put together feasible plans to how to move forward. Yeah. And so it's, it, it, there are a lot of skills that uh, are helpful in the nonprofit sector. And yeah, there are a lot of us who have uh, transcended um, different realms who started in the religion realm and that's good. That's fine. But um, we found, you know, this is the first time that I've worked in a uh, uh, with aging services or retirement communities and people who are up there in years. Um, but a lot of those skills are transferable because you've got to establish trust quickly with a donor. You need to be able to understand what's important to them so that you can speak to their needs. And you need to find out what is a, a social need that we can meet, something that we can address um, collectively and make a difference that's immediately visible. And those kinds of skills are very helpful. Um, most of the people that I work with, uh, the, the majority of my donors are senior citizens. Yeah. Um, the majority of them are in their 70s and 80s and some even older than that. And many of them have lived very full and meaningful lives and uh, have accomplished a great deal and they have uh, achieved financial security and and some of them have even looked around and said what am i supposed to do now that i you know have all this extra money you know how can i really make a difference and as we know philanthropy is not um uh, preoccupied with the dollar amount um fundraising is a servant to philanthropy as the saying goes philanthropy is based on the greek words phileos and um, anthropos, which are, of course, the love of humanity. And as we love people, really invest ourselves in what's meaningful and purposeful for them, then we will try to find solutions to their problems and their needs. And this is just one that we came across, um, the scholarship idea. And uh, I think that it, it could be transferable to a lot of different contexts. But that's the that's the short version. I look forward to sharing with you some of the details about the scholarship. Yeah, program. I mean, I, I love what you just said, boy. There was a <laughs> there's certainly a lot of avenues I could have gone with what you were just talking about. I mean, the first thing that came to my mind when you were talking about the three areas of philanthropy for your organization or for you know your uh, I wouldn't say your approach, but you, you know that and that was more toward the elderly. Uh, boy, that certainly could be applied to any type of uh, fundraising activity, right? I mean, getting to know the person, getting to know uh, what interests them, hearing their story, listening. Uh, you know, like I have a 97-year-old mom who's who's doing great and I see her once a week. And the second part of your conversation, I was like, you know, uh, believe it or not, although I, I do a podcast, uh, I'm not the best 
small talker in the world. And, you know, and, uh, you know, going to see my mom, it's, uh, you know, it could be a little uh, tedious. Uh, um, And I, and I, I I do my part certainly. So uh, I could use some of what you just said to maybe be a little bit better with my own mom as well. So, yeah, so that's good stuff. So, how long have you been the uh, involved with the um, the elderly care facilities that you've been involved with now? Well, I've been here at Cypress Cove for about five years. Uh-huh. Um, uh, ironically, it, I've been it's the same generation I've been serving for the last thirty five years in ministry. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of these folks just can't go to church anymore. You know, they're 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 not as mobile, um, and they're living in wonderful communities around the country. So. Um, uh, but actually getting involved in philanthropy goes all the way back to my toddler uh, years. Uh, I, was, I was one of those handicapped children that used to go on the telethons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, that's when I first realized that, you know, as I was watching those TV cameras and I was in my braces and all that sort of stuff, and I was noticing that scoreboard behind me that the numbers were going up and up and up. Those were donations that were paying a foundation to pay for my medical care. Oh, wow. And that's why I'm no longer a handicapped little child. Wow. But I realized at that point that there's this connection between resources and making things happen. Yeah, you yeah. Can't, you know, they, they have to go together. And, uh, and I also grew up uh, in a missionary family. My parents were missionaries. They had to raise their own support. And being able to relate to the potential donors and tell them what the vision is and report back to them how their gifts are succeeding and what they're accomplishing and, and keeping those relationships going is very key. So, um, yeah, when I ended up in, in parish ministry and worked in a denomination, a lot of those same principles are uh, right from the world of philanthropy. You, you have to be able to um, understand what it is that they, the people would like to accomplish. And if you can plug into that and make that happen, all the better. Um, sometimes people come into my office here at Cypress Cove and say, um, you know, I'm really concerned about um, hunger in Haiti. All right. Well, my office doesn't address hunger in Haiti, but I know yeah. it does. Yeah. Right. Huh. And I can put them in touch. Wow. And, and help make their life more fulfilling. Yeah, yeah. You see, well, was there was was there a was was there somebody in your position before you took it over, or did you create it? There was one person. She did a great job. Um, we keep in touch a little bit. Uh, her primary focus was capital, as the campus was building up, and now we've kind of maximized our our, our uh, grounds. Um, and she helped build the memory care center and the therapy center and some other things like that, which is a whole different game, of course. And, and um, uh, she did it without the benefit of a foundational system where you have an annual fund and a major gifts program and planned giving already. Um, so to be able to raise that kind of money was really something that she did a great job. So when I came along, um, she had been gone for a little while, went back to Virginia to be with her family, but closer to her parents. And um, uh, I took the uh, old capital campaign committee and said, hey, this is what we really need to do here. We need to create a comprehensive resource development system. And we're going to follow the similar structure that you see in nonprofits of all sizes. And it's going to be a three to four year project before it's really humming along. Are you in? And most of them said, yeah, that sounds like fun. And so 
we, we uh, started with a handful of volunteers, most of them uh, residents who were involved, uh, meaning these were the senior citizens who lived on the campus. But it also stretched out to some of the staff, board members, family members, etc. And I really got to give credit to my supervisor, who um, I can remember we had several meetings where we were looking at all the options of what we could do in terms of, you know, the case for support. and different things that we already were doing and things that we wanted to do possibly. And she came across the idea of scholarships for staff because we got here on this campus alone, we have 600 residents and 400 staff. Okay. 600 people who live here full time and 400 employees. And um, we're in South Florida. A lot of the folks, you know, are new to America. English is their second language. Um, some of them have uh, already accomplished uh, quite a bit academically in Cuba or wherever they came from, uh, but they have the language barrier. And so they end up getting whatever job they can get while they learn the language. Um, but some of them are second generation as well. And um, their parents were able to secure good blue collar and service jobs um, but their parents, just like any parents, want the best for their children and hope the most, uh, have the highest dreams for them. So uh, I, I looked around at other communities like ours that were doing scholarships, and there weren't many, but I learned what I could. And I spent more time studying the IRS regulations than anything um, and, and, and found out, you know, it wouldn't be that hard if we could just um, make the case appropriately. and. And uh, just like with any new major gift campaign or program, uh, an idea that's, that you're putting out there, you're going to have the skeptics. You know, they're going to have the people who say, well, let's see it succeed first. You know, I'll, I'll stand back and watch. And, and uh, um, if it works out, if it seems like it's going to happen, then great. And then there are always the uh, early adopters, too. So we got those folks to... Uh, Pony up, but I can remember. Oh my gosh, let me tell you, it was 20, <laughs> 2017. Um, we had this committee, they've been working now for months to cast this vision of a scholar. We're going to send our employees to college, and people were like, Yeah, right. And when we opened up an application process, and, and people started applying, and we thought, We're going to have to come up with some money to send these people to college. You know, and and when the deadline came and we were we were in a boardroom looking at a stack of applications. Uh -huh. Well, you and, knew that you knew the need was there. <laughs> and an account that only had this much money in it, you know. And I said, man, I don't want to spend everything in that account. You know, I don't want to get into that kind of a game. I'd like to build upon it each time. So. Um, uh, we kind of drew a line as to how much out of the account that we would allow it to, to, to absorb. And we had just enough to send 12 people to college. Oh. And that was like, oh, man, now we've got to do it again. <laughs> yeah. You know, what happens, of course, is that, you know, success breeds success. And, and once people started going to college and we started telling that story and putting their pictures on walls all over campus, and these are your scholars and, you know, well, then, you know, wallets loosened up a little bit and people wanted to get in on the game, you know, and yeah. they like being a part of that. And uh, and then it, it really started to snowball. 
So um, people stopped giving 20 bucks and 50 bucks and started giving 500 and 750 and 1,000, you know, with, hmm, we should probably create scholarships that are named yeah. and, and, and endowed. Uh, wow. So yeah. what, what dollar level do we need to, to guarantee that? And we landed on $10,000 for a named scholarship, which is a very low number compared to most universities, right? Yeah. But we were just getting started. And, um, and our finance office said, we can't handle um, endowed funds for less than 25000 Yeah. Fair enough. All right. So that's what we did is we um, rolled out the opportunity to create your own named scholarship, call it whatever you want. Again, I had to go back and spend several days with the IRS regulations around that. Um, but it turns out it's not, it's not difficult. It was a simple two-page gift agreement. And um, so the deal is you can, you can give uh, incrementally and eventually reach one of those levels, 10,000 or 25,000. Once it reaches those levels, you're, we can go public with it. So um, a donor might come in and say, well, I don't have $10,000 in my account that I want to just give you. I may need that money. And so I said, well, okay, fine. Why don't you do a, a, a irrevocable pledge that for three years or four years, you're going to give this much to, to make that happen. I can do that. And I said, yeah, the IRS considers that a, a finished gift, yeah. a completed gift. So why not? Yeah. That. Said, yeah, 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 and so that that just started happening really quick. We got um, we have one person um, who uh, was already a donor and had given some gifts to create a dog park on the in the community and things like that. And uh, he was a retired IBM exec, um, and his stock, you know, the IBM story, right? And so he just wrote out a, a huge gift and became the first of those accounts. But let me tell you, um, let me tell you a story. Mm -hmm. So, and she did, she won't mind me using her name. I already checked with her. Um, there was a, uh, uh, resident here who had moved from independent living over to skilled nursing because of a decline in her health. And she lived several years in that wing. Um, and it's still very high end and, and very fancy and, and classy. Um, and she was so impressed with the quality of care that she received. This woman was Ann Tatler. And she had a daughter from California who would fly to Fort Myers, Florida every month to see her mom. You think you've got it tough going <laughs> to your mom every week. Yeah, yeah. She lives there in Jersey, right? Yeah, yeah. See? Yeah. So um, what we did was um, uh, we, we took great care of her mom. She was impressed with the care. Her mom eventually passed away, and the daughter was uh, in the lobby one day. Um, she said, you know, I'd really like to say thank you to Cypress Cove for the great job you all did. Um, well, the concierge sitting at the, at the desk in the lobby said, well, you know, he's just started this scholarship program. We've already sent like 17 people to college. Well, the daughter, who'd never given any gift before, said, really? And so the concierge put the daughter and I together, and I explained it to her. And she said, well, let me think about that. 
Next thing you know, she says, yes, I'd like to create a scholarship in my mom's name. We'll call it the Ann Tatler Family Scholarship. That way I can invite people to make donations to her scholarship fund yeah. in perpetuity. And so that was that was really encouraging. And we made her feel you know, like a big hero, pictures, press release, all that sort of thing. And then she flew back to Fort Myers uh, again um, to say thank you to the employees uh, one last time and make an announcement about the scholarship. Well, if you fast forward about eight months, the staff scholarship committee is meeting in that boardroom and they're going through a big stack of applications now. And turns out that one of the applications in there was from that concierge. Oh, wow. Of course, they didn't know it because we blotted out their name. The, the, the applicants were, were uh, completely anonymous. Yeah. But she was selected. Wow. And then I said, okay, now it's time for us to discover who is the very first ever Ann Tatler Family Scholar. And so I had a, literally, I had a mug with Ann Tatler's family on it, right? Pieces of paper in there with the qualified names, and somebody pulled out the name, and sure enough, it was Tilly, the wow. concierge. Wow. Divine so, intervention, huh? Full circle. Um, and then the, a friendship has continued between that scholar and that donor based on a mother who passed away three years ago. That's great. And that continues. So we've, we've tried to make it possible as much as we can for the donors to meet their scholars. Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, it's another benefit. You know, you can create a scholarship fund now. You don't have to wait till you're dead. You can meet your scholar now. Yeah. And so we take some cues from the uh, agencies that where you adopt a hungry child. Yeah. Um, and, and you get their picture and and a little bit of communication can go back and forth. You know, we maintain some boundaries, but um, that that builds a real relationship with the recipient of the the goodness of the donor um it's very instantly rewarding so there's some of that psychology you know the donor has now seen a need met a need and they get immediate and lasting affirmation yeah they form a surrogate grandparent relationship yeah yeah with that scholar and watch them go through college watch them go through family life and career. And once a year, we have a big event called the Celebration of Scholars, where we bring the scholars back to Fort Myers and we just tell their stories. We don't ask them to do anything except show up and bring their family. And uh, But we've got to gather their stories in advance. Yeah. So we put the stories and pictures and videos up on a big screen in the auditorium. And every, the place is packed. Donors get a special private reception beforehand. So uh, it's a lot of fun. Oh, here's the even more fun. Now we've got a group of residents. Picture sweet little old ladies, mostly, who uh, now that the program's been around for a few years, they want to keep in touch with the scholars, past and present. So they formed the Scholars Alumni Association. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and they meet once a month. And I mean, they've each got five or six scholars that they call on and just, how you doing? Any big news in your world? Yeah. <laughs> and um, they come back together and they swap all the news and pictures of the new baby and all that sort of thing. And so 
Of course, they're they're enormous donors. These people wow. are thrilled to be able to help raise another family, you know, to help uh, do. And of course, it's all above board. It's all through the IRS guidelines. You know, they give to yeah. the foundation. The yeah. organization handles it in, in appropriate ways. Um, but it's very rewarding for the donors. So I thought, well, you know, this wouldn't be too hard. Um, to replicate um, in, in in a lot of different other uh, settings, um, so take uh, an organization that does help people. You know, you're in the hum- direct human services field, um, and we know that it's it's wise to put out there that your gift of five dollars accomplishes this. Your gift of fifty dollars accomplishes this. You know, so many meals or so many uh, whatever you can. Um, now kick that up to a very large scale and say $10,000 or $25,000. I find that those numbers aren't as fearsome to some donors, to a lot of, you know, uh, sometimes we we make this jump in our mind from your your everyday type of donors um, to the mega donors, you know, and we all want to go find the Jeff Bezos of the world types, you know, and um, we're missing some of that next step type donor, the people who do have the ability to write out gifts of 4,000 or or four figures, um, five figures, and occasionally um, uh, a six figure gift will come in, usually through a bequest. Yeah. Yeah. I have I have a, a a challenging question for you. It's going to put you on the spot, but I mean you've had a a long history of fundraising and, and experience in nonprofits. You know, it, it, the scholarship fund fit well into into uh, Cypress Grove, um, but you know, suppose and this is let's say you have a a, a nonprofit that helps kids that cut themselves. Um, and you know, you, you know, it's how, how could you apply a scholarship model to an organization that does that? Yeah. Yeah. And I've had this conversation with a lot of my colleagues Uh who want to replicate this in some appropriate way. And so, yeah, you've got organizations where the, um, beneficiaries are, uh, understandably kept anonymous, right? You've got a, you've got children involved, or yep. um, uh, battered spouses, or uh, for the dignity of the homeless, you know, things like that. You don't want to, you know, exploit these folks whatsoever. And, yeah. and in some cases, it's illegal even for appropriate ethical reasons. So, what can you do? Well, um, if there is so we've said, well, what is what can we say is a dire need that you are meeting? And is there a way that we can protect the anonymity of these folks and still have stories of uh, trophies um, that they come back with? And one of the things that, we've, that, that I've heard some folks say is, yeah, if we do testimonials, of folks who have benefited. They're no longer in the program or whatever, but they can come back and tell exactly what happened. Um, then we can, we can uh, have a direct response. And people tend to, who have been the beneficiary, 
uh, are very appreciative and are glad to tell their story at some point. So, for example, I did a brief stint um, with the American Red Cross as a uh, interim director of a chapter in Georgia. And, uh, and I've been a Red Cross volunteer already for a long time and actually worked closely with the national office as I built the disaster response program for my denomination. Um, so I had a few connections and they called on me and they said, listen, the chapter uh, uh, down in Columbus, uh, Georgia, um, the executive director just resigned or retired and, and we need somebody who can be a bridge for a couple of years. Sure. So. Um, I didn't realize it would happen, but people used to walk into the lobby and make a donation who would want to tell their story and say, you know what? A year ago, it was like four in the morning and our smoke alarm went off and we got the kids outside, um, but our house burned down. And of course, the fire truck and the police cars were the first to arrive at the EMS. And here comes the Red Cross right behind them. And it was that social worker with the Red Cross who got us into a hotel room immediately, got the kids dressed and cleaned up and fed for breakfast so they can go to school the next day without missing a beat, and helped us fill out all the paperwork for insurance and everything else. And now it's a year later, and we're back in, you know, the house is rebuilt and everything's great. And I'm just now getting around to saying thank you. So here, can I give you a gift? And I said, wow, that's a great story. Thank you very much. Would you do me a favor? Um, right here in the next room, we've got a little video camera on a tripod. And uh, if you don't mind, just tell that story into the camera. And uh, we, we do this with a lot of the donors. And, and we'll share it with other donors and potential donors just to say thank you to them. And most of the time I say, well... Okay, you know, so I hand them a, a little script and um, let them fill it in, but it has certain names on it. All right, so it's say, uh, Dear, uh, hello, Mr. Brown. I don't know you and you don't know me, but my name is Alan. And a year ago, my house burned to the ground in the middle of the night, and the Red Cross was there to help me out. And they worked very hard and got me back on my feet. And I understand that your gifts helped make that happen. So I just want to say thank you. Mm. Hello, Mrs. Jones. My name is Alan. And a year ago, in the middle of the night, my house burned to the ground and Red Cross. So they'll go through about six or seven names before they say, is that enough? And I say, yeah, 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 yeah. So what do I do? Of course, I take the chip out of the camera. I run, plug it into my laptop, do some quick editing and attach those little uh, little links to the videos to the donor and call them and say, hey, Mr. Brown, I just sent you an email. I think you'll like it. Click. Hey, Ms. Jones, I think you should check your email. I just sent you something you're going to love. You know? And then they open up their email and they see on their screen the voice and face of someone who they don't know, yeah. who is now coming forward and saying, you did this for me. So then, you know, what happens, of course, Mr. Brown calls me up and says, what do you need? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man, I'm, I'm here to help. This is great. You know, I said, yeah, well, you know, we do it every day and we do it anonymously. And uh, thanks to you, it, it happens a lot all over the world. So yeah, that's I think it, the way to do that. It seems like it brings up a, <clears throat> a, a good uh, analogy, not analogy, but a point. And that is, instead of thinking about how you can, like, 
how many more people you can ask for money, how many, where else you can go to ask for money. If you think of the end first and work your way back, in other words, if you think of um, how can we uh, tell the story of the people who have already given, how can we tell the story better of what we do um, that that in itself will get word out and will people will come to us instead of us going to them. You know, it, I love it says we, we should not be thinking about how we can make people give, but how we can let people give. Yeah. Yeah. And get the word out. Right. They want to give. Yes. People who give love to give. Yes. And, and they will give as much as they can. Yes. If, you know, if, if it's closer and closer to what's most important and meaningful to them. Yeah. And that's why it's never, it's never wise in my opinion for a development professional to go into meeting with a donor and pitch the latest cause or our current need. You got it backwards, totally upside down. You've got to figure out what is it they want to accomplish with yeah. their life. Yeah. Yeah. What's the most important thing to them? Yeah. And that's what well, when I'm talking with these people who are in their eighties and 90s, yes, they're thinking, yeah, you know, uh, my health won't allow me to go do some of the things I would like to do, but I've still got a couple of items on my bucket list. Alan, can you help make those happen? Yeah. I'll, say, I'll put people together. You know, maybe did I miss? Well, okay. So it was the, you know, it's the old as is chicken, the egg, right? Is the, uh, was it the scholarship idea that came first or was it the, we have people here in our, uh, retirement community who want to give and we need to enable that, which came first. There were already givers um, before I came. That's on. right. That's Not right. Too many. I mean, we did a capital campaign. Yeah. Um, and quite a few of the residents participated in making that happen. Um, and then we just had these occasional small, you know, fundraiser things, little events and, uh, toy drives or school supply drives, you know, um, lots and lots of volunteerism on the campus as well as in the community. So, you know, there was like this office of altruism kind of thing going on already. But the gifts that were coming in uh, were, you know, very, very small. You know, I mean, the whole year they get a total of maybe $25,000 of donations because there was not any big project um, being asked for after the capital campaign. Um, meanwhile, a lot of these residents, you know, they're, they're living down here in Florida, but they've got kids and grandkids scattered all over the country. And uh, they, they bond relationships with the staff. Um, and because they have the same person who may clean their apartment on a regular basis, the dining room, wait staff and and they see the managers who are running around keeping this place tip top and first class the um uh activities directors so these people become like their surrogate family and and they really want to get to know them well tell me about your story and oh my gosh it's so interesting that you came um from honduras you know and you walked here you know that sort of stuff moves them and it's still they're still very human and emotional um, and wanting to connect. And so when we, they learn that these people whom they genuinely care for um, lack education, but they can help make it happen, 
I say, really? How would that work? And so, yeah, the first year, our total gifts um, uh, were only about $86,000, all right? But then the next year, it was around two fifty, right? And so it's continued to ramp up. Last year, it was $670,000, um, most of that for scholarships. Great. And uh, this year, we got a brand new chair of the scholarship committee, and he's got a real amazing development background. And he's wanting to raise a quarter million dollars in two months. And, mm. you know, he's and ambitious. We can do this. Yeah. You know? um, so the, the trick that I see, Stephen, is how can we translate this into the various nonprofits that are listening? Right. Yes. They all have different means of getting the I just found that when when we put out the expense and the uh the expense of college that is um the expense that and a lot of these folks went to college or sent their kids and grandkids to college they know what it costs and when we raise the bar for a named and endowed scholarship yeah. um so now we're at 21 named and endowed scholarships with about half a million dollars in those funds. Yeah. Um, and that's only in three years. Yeah. But, you know, we gave people a structure to give uh, and make a, a really big impact. And when a donor creates a scholarship, I mean, we treat them like a rock star. We, we put a big poster out, um, unless they want to be anonymous, of course. We, we give a, a bio sheet to every recipient. Yeah. Scholar. And these are the people who gave this gift. And uh, these are the values that they wanted to pass along to you. And um, we do different things to help match up the recipients with the donors in a tasteful, appropriate way. Do you too. think you think looking back, um, I know this sometimes is a big issue with uh, the uh, nonprofits um, that, you know, all the clients that we deal with, uh, our, our clients tend to be under $5 million in revenue. So there's, you know, right. million dollars is a normal nonprofit that we work with. Yeah. But I, I know that one of the issues um, that sometimes you see is, you know, a nonprofit, it's focusing all their efforts or, you know, on small donations, uh, a barbecue, you know, this, this type of stuff, instead of focusing on the large uh, and, you know, endowments, the, you know, that's not, I don't know if that's the right word, um, but the larger donors uh, would do you think that's a mis- do, do you think the smaller donors will contribute to a large donor giving base, um, or do you think it's a mistake and you should kind of go for the? Um, I don't like to use the word big whale and not in nonprofits, but you, but, know. you know I'm a fan of the Indiana University School of Philanthropy, uh, and and it's all research based, and and other schools have uh, contributed to that, and other schools yeah. have replicated that, and, and they point out that you've got to keep a steady stream of new donors coming yeah. into the system, yeah. right? Yeah. Because you're going to lose a percentage of uh, donors every year because they die or they move off or they move to another cause or whatever. Yeah. So um, uh, let's say it's 15% yeah. of your donor base every year that stops giving. That's a lot of people, right? So how are you, you, you have to be adding 15% in terms of just the number of donors to keep this, that number the same. Yeah. But these are people who have been giving for years most of the time and they're giving at a higher level. So it's an even more uh, uh, challenging uh, figure that you're going to have to bring in every year. Now, your, your barbecues and your bake sales and stuff like that, 
that's a fine way to attract new people, to let them learn about you, to build an initial relationship. And uh, eventually they'll become a volunteer maybe. And eventually after that, they may give five, 10 bucks, see how you steward them, see how you uh, report back on what that gift accomplished. And so, so that's a crucial part of the quote pipeline, you know, to keep the new people in, coming into the system and getting more in, involved in your mission and you grow them as a donor. But honestly, you know, we've got a very small shop here. It's just a couple of people plus some other support um, and lots of volunteers. So we farm out those kinds of things. Let, let, you know, if a volunteer wants to have a raffle or a pancake breakfast or whatever. That's a great idea. Here's some guidelines. You know, we protect the brand, you know, what you can do and what you can't do kind of stuff. And come back and we'll print up a big check and take your picture. That's easy. That's great. And that way you all can do that. And um, uh, again, Red Cross was really great at doing that kind of thing. Lots of community organizations have fundraisers at their church or at the fire hall or whatever, and they're donating the net proceeds to the Red Cross because we don't have time to be flipping pancakes, you know, and and uh, it's much more effective if a firefighter is standing there in their uniform at the stoplight with a boot going from window to window asking for change. Then it would look at the return on investment, though. Once those relationships have been nurtured over a months or years, you know, and you really know what that donor wants to accomplish with their life and you figured out a way you can help make that happen, then you can say, I I think I have a plan for you. What do you think? And eventually you reach out a solution. And when you're going that deep into their heart, they're going to be giving from that deep in their heart. And the amount that they give is is much larger than if they're just giving out of obligation to get rid of you or you know just because we want to look good. No, if they're giving for something that's very purposeful for them. It's yeah. it's self-defining for them. And therefore the amount that they're going to give is the greatest amount that they can afford to give. I love the idea of what you just said. What a great idea about farming out the smaller stuff, the smaller programs to um, volunteers or, or other people. That way the executive director can kind of focus in on the the, the bigger prize, so to speak. But don't forget uh-huh. the executive director is the face of the organization. Right. And so they need to have some kind of a big thank you role. You know, they they may need to have a big picture with somebody and, and you know, the executive director can't be detached. Yeah, because yeah. that's who they think of. That's who they see on the newscast or in the paper. So they want to ha- have that connection. Well, that's great. Good podcast. I really, I really learned a lot and enjoyed it. Uh, you know, thanks, uh, Alan, for coming on. Uh, it was really, thank you, really informative. Your work. So, uh, you know, again, I want to thank Alan Abbott from uh, Cypress Grove for coming on today's podcast. If you like today's podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend. And also subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. If you like today's podcast, please give us a review on your podcasting app to help us get the word out. And of course, if you're looking for a line of credit for your nonprofit, you can call us at 862-207-4118 or visit our website at nonprofitmbapodcast.com. Alan, if anybody wants to reach you, how would they go about doing that? Uh, the best way to reach me would be uh, actually by email. 
and just send it to A-A-B-B-O-T-T, A-Abbott, at cypressliving.org. Yep, and it'll also be in our show notes. Uh, as you as you guys know, we we after uh, we do these podcasts, we write them up into a really great article, and then uh, so Alan's contact information will be there as well. And uh, you know, uh, the last year and a half uh, has been a challenging year for many people. And uh, you know, I always thank our listeners for the work that they're doing. Alan, thank you for the work that you're doing. And, uh, you know, it's making the world a better place. If we each just take our own part of making the world a better place every day, every week, every month, every year, the world would be a lot better. And I think it'd be more gratifying for us each as well. I know I'm going to try to do a better job with my mom to do a, make the world a better place. <laughs> so uh, more, more small talk. So, uh, but uh, anyway, uh, everybody have a great day. Please stay safe. And enjoy the rest of 2021. Things like things are going to be looking up, I think, for us all. Have a great day. Bye.